Sunday morning. Well, uh, continuing in our study of 1 Peter, uh, today we're beginning the fifth chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4 to get us started. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd arrives or appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have your word to turn to, that you've made sure that what you've said was written down and made available to us. And now in the time that we have in your word, we pray for your Holy Spirit to carry out that illumining ministry in each of our hearts, that we would understand in a more complete way why you've said what you've said. And we could understand its application. We could see where there need to be changes in the way we think, in the way we act. And then enable us through your Spirit as we would step out in obedience to the clear message. And we'll give you thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 5 is one of those strange things that happens as you're reading through the scripture, and that's that there was a chapter division at the right place. (laughs) You know, it's not like, again, as you know, chapter and verse divisions were not in the original manuscripts. They were added later, not badly, but added later as a convenience factor for us to try to make better sense of the scriptures and uh, organize people turning to the same place and all that. But nonetheless, at, at times, as you exposit the scriptures, you discover, well, I don't know, this is the best place to put this chapter division. Probably should have waited and put it in verse 4 or something of this next segment. This is one of those places where there's a really good place for it because uh, the focus has changed, in a way, in First Peter. The end of the fourth chapter, as you put up with for a number of weeks, we were looking in verses 13 to 19 about suffering in the Christian life and trials in the Christian life. And uh, that was a tough number of weeks to keep working our way through. Uh, Not tough in the sense it was like hard work, but it was draining to do so because that's a tough topic to deal with for us because of the reality of it and the the suffering realities of our lives. Here now in chapter 5, we shift gears And God begins to turn our attention to a different topic than suffering. And the topic he turns our attention to is leadership. And a very particular type of leadership. Leadership as it's supposed to work out in the framework of the local church, the local flock. (coughs) And one of the things that goes right at the beginning of looking at these verses together is to say this. God's commands about leadership automatically overrule every human idea about leadership. As they do on any issue. I was in a meeting one time where somebody was saying something, teaching about something that really was not what God said, clearly contrary to what God said but was being pushed because, and talking about leadership, because it seemed to be 
there were there were te- testimonials of where this seemed to work. And I said, and my response was, I don't care what testimonials you have out there. What God says always overrules what anybody says. Your ability to even make sense out of what happened is corrupted. So what you think maybe has succeeded something, it probably did just the opposite. And especially if you were doing something contrary to what God says to do. God's teachings about everything overrule human ideas. And certainly when it comes down to the issue of leadership, God's truths overrule human wisdom. Which means God could direct a church to do something that the world just scratches their head at. But isn't that the case all through 1 Peter? Remember one of the themes throughout 1 Peter has been living as exiles and sojourners in a world doing things that by design are, create countercultural contrasts in the world. Because the very fact of doing it God's way makes us stick out. We're not, the world scratches its head. It can't make sense about us. And we saw lots of ways where that Romans 12.2, not being conformed to the world but being transformed, uh, how that was meant to work out. So it would make sense now as we enter into the fifth chapter and we come to this issue of leadership, especially leadership in the local church, that what God has to say might in point of fact create a countercultural contrast how he wants a church to be run, by definition, would be one in which the world would scratch its head and say, now, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. God wants the local church and the local church leaders to function in a way that's in marked contrast to the world's wisdom about how leadership is carried out and how organizations run best. Now, brothers and sisters, here's a principle I want you to hold on to. God doesn't want the church to look like a successful world's organization. God doesn't want it to. We don't gain opportunity for the gospel because somebody looks at how well-oiled the machinery is in a local church. God doesn't want the church to look and act like world organizations. I was thinking of Matthew chapter 20 in that regard. Uh, remember the disciples were talking, sort of debating about leadership back and forth. And here's what Jesus said to them in the beginning in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 20. Jesus called to them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. I.e., here's a, here's a leadership strategy that operates in the world. The leaders rule. The leaders Rule it over them. That's the nature of the strategy. Their great ones, as he goes on and says, the great ones exercise authority over everybody. Then verse 26, it shall not be so among you. What? No, no, no. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, not to exercise power, but to serve 
and ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many. It shall not be so among you. Brothers and sisters, I say that to you and I have a difficult time not breaking into tears in front of you. Because that can't be said very many places. I've been in the ministry a long time. And I've been all over this country. And I've been in lots of contexts. There's not very many places where I think what happens fits this passage. Instead, what you see happening makes sense to the world. And God says, but it's not supposed to be that way among you. It's not supposed to be that way. Well, if that's the case, how is it supposed to be among you? (laughs) You know, if you don't want us to be that way, how do you want us to be? How do you want a church to operate? How do you want leadership to function? And God says, well, I'm glad you asked, because that's why I'm giving you these verses. We're going to talk about what will seem abject foolishness to the world. It's how I want you to be. You mean, you want us to act in a way the world will just make fun of us? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's that's about what it comes down to. Uh, Because that's what happens on almost every aspect of our Christian walk, isn't it? Remember earlier in the fourth chapter, he says, the world can't make sense out of you. I don't know why you don't join with them in all these things. And not only are you confusing them, but they start to persecute you because you make them feel bad. You make them feel guilty by the very fact you won't join with them in the flood of dissipation that marks their life. So I'm not to surprise us that the scripture about leadership is going to lead to ridicule generally, not just head-scratching from the world around us. I'm not going to race through verses 1 to 4. Uh, we'll take our time. And they'll say, well, so what else is new? You know. Well, but, but in this case, I feel like we need to because God says, not so among you. And I want to be sure it's not so among us. Uh, I want to be sure. A side note. Not expositional, but a side note. uh, Before we get into the verses themselves. Uh, I believe strongly that the local church and leaders of the local church must avoid the temptation to try to apply the latest secular Gentile wisdom management theories to help the church run better. But sadly, many churches seem convinced that's where the answers are to make their, whatever they're calling it, run better. At the university, where it was God's plan that I spend 25 years plus of my, of my life teaching doctoral students about many issues related to research, related to administrative leadership, leadership in general, organizational structure. Uh, At the university, I 
had to study many such worldly wisdom things. Not only study them, but teach them. I was called upon to do consulting in some major organizations on management theory. I was called upon and did consulting to major government agencies about organizational theory and leadership. I'm very familiar because I was forced to be. Couldn't have passed my doctoral orals if I hadn't. About all of that essential body of theory that makes up what an MBA program looks at in terms of organizational leadership and organizational management. And I shared those things in those courses. And you said, well, why? Didn't you feel terribly compromised? No. Because it was in courses, it was in government, it was in corporations, it was not in the church. The fact of the matter is, that worldly wisdom does work in those settings. Why? Because those settings are made up of fallen, sinful humanity. God, by putting organizations and social structures together among fallen, sinful, unredeemed humanity, in his common grace put civil government in place, first of all, to try to control the ravages of sin let loose that happens in anarchy, apart from such government control. And organizational structures are made up not of redeemed people generally, but unredeemed people. And what you have to do to try to control sin, backstabbing, self-directedness, self-glorification in such contexts requires a set of strategies. But they are not strategies God wants in the church. What works to bring order and efficiency in the midst of self-centered, sinful people and in the institutions that they establish is not intended by God to be the strategy you use among the redeemed. That's not how he wants the church to run. And people say, well, the people apply some of these things and their church runs better. That in itself ought to be a red flashing light for us. If unbiblical ideas make things seem to run better, maybe the thing isn't what God wants. Maybe, maybe the church is so screwed up it reflects the world more than God's purpose. In which case, worldly ideas would work. Far from confirmation that we're doing the right thing, it ought to be condemnation. It's like, oh Lord, this is working? Save us because it's clearly not so among you. It's clearly that isn't happening. Because it must be different that this would work. By the way, I refused to share such secular management theories with pastors. And even in a case with Christian organizations where I was called upon to help them, I tried in the teaching of those people to distinguish between this, I'm sharing some things with you not because you're a church, you're not a church. There's not a secular ministry out there, word of life, including that's a church. It's an arm of the church. And institutionally has structures that don't exist in local churches. 
within the setting of those structures, there are certain things we can understand about communication flows, organizational work patterns, and things like that that can be of use to you. But brothers and sisters, this is not how God wants the church to be. Well, could be a sign when things work that we're more like the world's organization than the countercultural koinonia community that God intends the local church to be. You say, well, yeah, but we're much bigger. Since when did that mean anything? Jerusalem was facing destruction at the time of Jeremiah, and the attendance at the temple was higher than it had ever been. I mean, what's, what size mean? It means nothing. 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 Well, God doesn't want the church to look like the world's organizations and institutions, and therefore I suspect he is not wanting us to use as a basic operating principle the world's management theories to make our churches run better. It just just seems so incongruent to me. It's like, how could this be? You know, why would that be the case? And you say, well, the world, that you mean even the unsaved can understand some things. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but that doesn't mean that God wants what they've kind of stumblingly come to understand to be how the church operates any more than the world's best wisdom about how families ought to operate and marriages ought to be ought to be what we're teaching people in the church. Because it isn't going to produce a biblical family. It isn't going to produce a biblical marriage. But it might produce something better than the disaster that's generally out there. Well, I want something more for the church than the disaster that's out there as far as organizations are concerned. But I don't want the means to it to be a secular means. All right, back to exposition. All right. that, I, I had to preface it by saying we're not doing teaching here, and I don't want you to interpret this expositionally. But brothers and sisters, I had to say it. You need to know where I'm coming from on understanding issues related to organizational leadership and institutional leadership. Lesson number one in verses one to four of 1 Peter 5. The clear implication is that it is God's will for the local church to have leaders. Now we repeat that. It is God's will for the local church to have leaders. Now, why would I identify that as the first of the principles here, the first of the lessons? Because I have seen a number of writings in recent years where people have said, we think the problem with the church is leadership. I don't think the church should have leadership. And it simply reflects the world's anarchy that even without any research foundation to it, people just blindly believe in the innate goodness of mankind. And let's just do away with government. Let's just do away with everything. The essential wonder of the human heart will come out and everybody will be good and wonderful. You know, It's just an uncritical absorption of what is really a worldly delusion into the context of the church. Hey, listen. I know of no episode, not a pretty extensive study of church history, I know of no episode where anything calling itself a church that sought to run without leadership ever blossomed into wonderful, God-fearing utopia. 
It didn't happen. Why? Because that's not how it happens. It's not how it happens. It is God's will that there be leaders in the local church. The problem isn't leaders. The problem is when leaders are not carrying out the role properly. That's the problem. The answer to with that sort of problem isn't to do away with leaders. It's sort of like a politician. If there's a problem, it's because they're not carrying out their task properly. It isn't that you have a politician. The answer to government not being what it should be is to have no government, because all that does is produce Genesis 5 and 6 mass exploitation, rape, and murder without, in the absence of the sword that the government holds in the midst of a fallen world. There's no answer that way. You have problems in leadership in a local church, the answer isn't to do with leadership. The answer is to get your leadership acting as Jesus says, let it not be so among you. He didn't say don't have, don't have leaders. He said just don't let the leaders function in a way like they are out in the world. We're to have leaders. But these leaders, he says, clearly are not rulers in the worldly sense of the word. Uh, Because Matthew 20, and then, of course, here. A church leader, in other words, we're supposed to have them. That's what God says. But here's, here's the point. The church leader's not the king of the church. The church leader is not the dictator of the church. The church leader is not some sort of Old Testament high priest. We have a priesthood of believers in the New Covenant era. Practically speaking, what does that mean? There's no kissing of rings going on here. There's no kneeling before anybody. Before any leader. That's not how the church leadership is supposed to function. <laughs> That's no answer. You say, well, some people went with that answer. Well, yeah, but people have gone with wrong answers all along. I mean, that's, that, that doesn't justify anything. You say, well, that model's persisted a long time. Yeah. So has sin since the garden. I mean, what's, what's that mean? You know, that it's persisted a long time. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't settle the issue for us. God gives a very different picture of his intention for church leaders. And all of the remaining lessons in 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, help us to understand, oh, you mean they're not rulers? No. <laughs> but they have a role, and an important role, and an authority, but it's, it's not that. It's not that. By the way, before we leave this issue that you're supposed to have leaders... We can make a mistake by thinking the really crucial thing about leaders is that we call them the right thing. And I've seen people endlessly debate, I'm people, I'm talking pastors, uh, Bible teachers, endlessly debate, well, should we say this word? Should this be the title we use? Should that be the title we use? Brothers and sisters, the issue is less the proper name, more the proper practice here. (laughs) You know... 
Don't say, oh, you mean the Bible doesn't mean anything? No, but what I am saying is simply to have a transliterated Greek or Hebrew word doesn't mean you have the essence of the word. You know, there's all kinds of people out here that use the word Jesus, which is a great biblical word, but they don't mean what the Bible means by that word, so it doesn't matter they're using the name Jesus. In the same way, you could have a biblical title, but if you're not doing what the Bible says, it means nothing. Or worse, it's a distortion of God's word. So the fact you have the biblical title is irrelevant. Does that mean I don't take the word seriously? No, of course, I take it seriously. I think we should have biblical words and right words, but the answer isn't by having the right word. I've seen groups say, oh, well, we're, gonna, we're now going to call this person this. You know, We haven't used this word before. We're going to use the word elder, or we're going to use this word. And they think you know, they've come to some profound change because now we're using the right word. Do the right thing. I mean, that's, that, that, that'd be a good solution. Let's do what they're supposed to do. And you come back and we can talk then about, well, maybe what's the best way we describe this word? Uh, by the way, most of the words that we use simply are transliterations from Hebrew or Greek. They're words that don't mean anything except as a transliterated word. I mean, there isn't a word that has its root in Anglo-Saxon history, and therefore we know it sort of means this. So they're, they're just words that, if we strip from their biblical meaning, are meaningless, ultimately. Now, this passage talks about several words. It talks about elder. talks about those who practice oversight, overseers. talks about shepherds. There's some good biblical words here, and I like to make use of them. But not because we've gained anything by the word, you follow? Other passages tell us other titles, deacons, pastor, teachers, other things, you know, lots of good terms, biblical terms, but uh, we have to be careful that we don't look to the wrong thing. By the way, before I leave that, let me say, because I'm not going to get much further than this today, I can see that, Uh, let me say this, that there are some words that we better not be using because biblical exposition demonstrates they're not legit. Uh, For example, the word high priest or any form of it is an old covenant terminology. I don't want to see that word used, biblically anyway, to describe anybody in the new covenant era. I don't want to see the word apostle used in this era because there's a very clear definition of the scriptures on the word apostle. And there ain't anybody around who has that definition anymore. There's a lot of people around who have that designation, but they're not around, they don't have that definition. And so there are some words we shouldn't use. So I'm not totally saying words are unimportant, but I'm just saying the issue is more what is a word supposed to represent. That's, that's the core question here. core is making sure that the leaders who are part of God's plan are doing what God says they're supposed to do. That's what we should be after. Then, after we know they're doing what God's supposed to do, then we can sit down and say, now which of these terms maybe is the best one for us to use here to describe this 
biblical activity that's actually being carried out. Rather than, what's the best word to describe an activity that by definition isn't biblical? How do you want to spend your time? I want to spend my time on trying to figure the best way to describe what's the biblical activity. Not what's the best word detached from the biblical activity. Well, didn't get too far. Uh, but I had to do a couple preliminaries here, and I just thought, okay, they're out of the way. Maybe, maybe we'll make more progress next week. But uh, listen, the world does have wisdom. Part of the task for us is to decide what part of it's applicable and what part isn't applicable to us. And when it comes, and because of what Matthew 20 told us, when it comes to understanding leadership, we better be darn sure that that particular episode was chosen for a reason by God in Matthew chapter 20. And when he says, this is not how I want leadership to function in a church, it ought not to be so among you, then leadership issues are ones we ought to be especially careful about when it comes time to where does our belief and understanding of it originate? What are we banking on in leadership? Let's bank on the word. And you say, well, that's kind of scary. You know, maybe they have more or less authority than I think they should have or whatever. And say, I come back again and say, so what else is new? What issue do we ever look at in the scriptures that you don't come away thinking, this is a little scary? You know, we do this. How many of the issues of countercultural things we've looked at in First Peter have you not said, well, I do that, a little scary. You know, I respond to authority in this way, in the, in the workplace, in the society, uh, in the marriage. Hey, that's the way it is. Here's my challenge. Let's be scared together. All right? Let's be scared together. Realistic enough to say, it all kind of scares me, Lord. Good, we're all together. That's right. Bunch of scaredy cats. But we know who to look to to keep doing what we're supposed to do even if we're scared about it. I'd far rather have a scaredy cat who says, but I'm moving forward, Lord, take my hand, than the person with false bravado who hasn't thought enough about it to even be scared. The more you think about anything, the more scared you ought to be and say, Lord, apart from you, I could do nothing. God says, oh, you're seeing it right. But you can do all things through Christ that strengthens you. And he won't mock us about it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a time together on this day. Thank you that you have spoken to different issues. Certainly now as we're talking about church leadership, you've spoken to that question. Help us to have an understanding of what you've said, to recognize its application within our lives and within our church. We'll give you thanks and praise as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a good week, brothers and sisters, and uh, thanks for your patience as we press forward and uh, try to try to get into these verses together.